Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Lahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CI members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers the period from June 29th to August 1st. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10, on July 21st, U.S. Senate Banking Committee Republicans sent the letter chastising U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler for not responding adequately to their June 15th letter requesting answers to questions and records related to the SEC's March proposed climate disclosure rule. The lawmaker said Chair Gensler sent a perfunctory one-page response that included none of the answers or records requested and offered to arrange a briefing by SEC staff, which they said they did not request. The letter also highlighted the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision in West Virginia versus EPA, in which the senators indicated that the court ruled that the executive branch and its agencies, including financial regulators, cannot use new interpretations of existing law to exercise legal authority and support policy changes. The letter concluded that, quote, unfortunately, the SEC appears to be trying to act in precisely this way with its climate disclosure rule, unquote. Number nine, on June 30th, Mark Ueda was sworn in as commissioner of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Commissioner Ueda served on the staff of the SEC since 2006, including as senior advisor to Chairman Jay Clayton, senior advisor to acting chairman Michael Piwawar, counsel to Commissioner Paul Atkins, and in various staff positions in the Division of Investment Management. Most recently, he was seconded from the SEC to the U.S. Senate Banking Committee as Securities Counsel to the committee's minority staff. Number eight, on July 18, Jaime Lizarraga was sworn in as a commissioner at the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission. Commissioner Lizarraga comes to the SEC after serving as senior advisor to U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi of California for more than 14 years. In that role, he oversaw issues related to financial markets, small business, international finance, and immigration. He was also Speaker Pelosi's liaison to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Commissioner Lizarraga worked at the SEC briefly earlier in his career, spending 18 months as Deputy Director of the Office of Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs. Number seven, on July 26, speaking at the Center for Audit Quality Conference commemorating the 20th anniversary of the enactment of Sarbanes-Oxley Act, U.S. Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler discussed auditing standards, inspections, and enforcement. Observing that many audit firms went on to rebuild their consulting businesses after spinning them off following the enactment of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, Chair Gensler underscored the importance of audit firms maintaining a culture of ethics and integrity and placing the highest priority on auditor independence throughout the firm, not just in the audit practice, and encourage firms to review and enhance their independence protocols, 
with respect to their auditing and consulting practices. In light of the growth and the size and complexity of non-audit services, Chair Gensler has asked the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board to consider adding updates for auditor independence standards to their agenda and said the SEC may need to take a fresh look at its auditor independence rules as well. In addition, Chair Gensler reported that consistent with the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, the SEC and the PCAOB have been negotiating with Chinese authorities on a statement of protocol to govern inspections and investigations of registered public accounting firms on the ground in China and Hong Kong, noting that the agencies are not willing to have PCAOB inspectors sent to China and Hong Kong unless there is an agreement on a framework allowing the PCOB to inspect and investigate audit firms completely, Eric Gensler stressed that in light of the time required to conduct those inspections and fulfill quarantine requirements, a statement of protocol would need to be signed very soon if the inspections have any chance to be completed by the end of this year. Number six, on July 28th, U.S. Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Patrick Leahy of Vermont released the panel's fiscal year 2023 financial services and general government funding bill. Legislation, if enacted, which currently is unlikely, would, among other measures, fund the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission at $2.21 billion, or $210 million, over the fiscal year 2022 enacted level. Notably, the explanatory statement accompanying the bill encourages the SEC to take two actions. One, use its authority to provide retail-friendly disclosure for special purpose acquisition companies, and two, continue its efforts to explore various ways to reduce the burdens of publicly traded companies, including examining the frequency of periodic reporting. Number five. On July 28th, Investor Coalition for Equal Votes issued a letter to the United Kingdom's Financial Conduct Authority. The letter encouraged the Financial Conduct Authority, which is considering replacing premium and standard listing categories with a single segment regime to move forward with contemplated limits on super voting rights. Those limits include, most importantly, a five-year mandatory sunset approach, as well as certain requirements for the exercise of super voting rights. Examples include a 20 to 1 cap on the ratio of misalignment and restrictions on the types of voting items eligible for super voting rights. The Investor Coalition for Equal Votes was founded earlier this year by Railpen and CII. Letters co-signers included the Ohio Public Employees Retirement System, the Minnesota State Board of Investment, uh, the Office of the New York City Controller, and the Washington State Investment Board. CII weighed in separately with their own letter in support of the Investor Coalition for Equal Votes position on dual-class structures and called for retaining legacy listing eligibility criteria requiring a revenue track record, audited financial information, and a clean or unqualified working capital statement. The CII letter also urged the Financial Conduct Authority to clarify its terminology with respect to any listing obligation for which compliance is actually voluntary. 
Number four, July 28th, CI submitted a letter to Emmanuel Faber, the chair of the International Sustainability Standards Board. CI letter expressed general support for the International Sustainability Standards Board and its admittedly difficult mission to develop a comprehensive global baseline for corporate sustainability disclosure. CI letter provides detailed feedback on the International Sustainability Standards Board's first two proposed standards, a proposed standard on disclosure of sustainability-related financial information and a proposed standard on climate-related disclosures. More broadly, the CI letter references a CI membership-approved statement indicating that independent private sector standard setters should have a central role in the establishment of sustainability standards and that sustainability standards are more likely to meet investor needs for useful and comparable information when the standards focus on materiality and take into account appropriate sector and industry considerations. Number three, on July 28th, CII sent a letter to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission opposing a proposed rule that would modify certain pricing limitations for securities listed on the New York Stock Exchange in connection with a direct listing combined with a capital raise. Letter says that CI generally believes the SEC does not have a sufficient basis to determine that their proposed change would be consistent with the investor protections set forth in Section 6B5 of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Specifically, CII objects to lack of disclosure about price ranges that could result from the changes and expresses concern about the loss of investor protections related to direct listings more generally. Chief among those concerns are the difficulties that investors face in bringing claims under Section 11 of the Securities Act of 1933 for material misstatements or omissions in direct listing registration statements. But it explains that those difficulties are related to a legal tracing requirement and the absence of a traditional underwriter in direct listings. Those issues have been raised by CII on numerous occasions, including in September 2020, when CII filed a petition with the SEC requesting a full commission vote on the matter and generally objecting to the SEC staff's initial approval of a New York Stock Exchange proposed rule permitting a direct listing with a capital raise and thereby making direct listings a potential alternative to a traditional initial public offering. In December 2020, by a vote of three to two, the SEC ruled against the substance of CII's petition. The current New York Stock Exchange proposed rule is an attempt by the exchange to modify the December approved rules by providing for more flexibility with respect to the pricing of a direct listing with a capital raise. In contrast to 2020, it now appears that the SEC staff has adopted CI's longstanding concerns about the difficulties investors face in bringing Section 11 claims for material misstatements or omissions in connection with direct listing registration statements. CI's letter commended the SEC staff for their change of position and reiterated our longstanding concerns related to investor protections and direct listings. Number two, 
On July 13th, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission took two actions. First, they rescinded key provisions in its 2020 rules that had set onerous requirements, increasing the federal regulation of proxy advisors. And second, they proposed clarifying three of the bases for exclusion that companies may use to omit shareholder proposals from their proxy under Rule 14A8, the shareholder proposal rule. The SEC approved both items on a 3-2 vote with Commissioners Hester Peirce and Mark Ueda opposing both actions. In the first action, the SEC approved amendments rescinding provisions in the rules the SEC adopted in July of 2020 to increase the federal regulation of proxy advisory firms, but had never enforced. Two of the provisions rescinded were, one, a provision to make proxy advisory firm advice available to companies that are the subject of their advice at or before they make the advice available to clients, and two, a provision providing clients of proxy advisory firms with notice of any written statements by subject companies regarding the proxy advisory firm's voting advice. SEC Chair Gary Gensler froze the controversial 2020 rule soon after becoming SEC Chair in 2020. In discussing the new amendments, Chair Gensler said, quote, I am pleased to support these amendments because they address issues concerning the timeliness and independence of proxy voting advice, which would help to protect investors and facilitate shareholder democracy. It is critical that investors who are the clients of these proxy advisory firms are able to receive independent and timely advice, unquote. New amendments also include the elimination of Note E to Rule 1409 of the July 2020 rules, which intended to clarify, by example, when the failure to disclose material information regarding proxy voting advice could be misleading. It also discussed the limited circumstances under which statements of opinion would subject proxy advisors to liability. The SEC also scrapped the 2020 supplemental guidance regarding the proxy voting responsibility of investment advisors, including how investment advisors use proxy advisor firms' electronic vote management system. Notably, the SEC did not drop the provision in 2020 rules classifies proxy voting advice as a solicitation subject to proxy rules under federal securities law. Proxy advisor firms also would still be subject to conflict of interest disclosure requirements adopted in the July 2020 rules. The new amendments will become effective September 19, 2022. CII applauded the SEC's elimination of some of the onerous provisions in the July 2020 rules that could have harmed the independence, cost, and implement. CI applauded the SEC's elimination of some of the more onerous provisions in the 2020 rules that could have harmed the independence, cost, and timeliness of proxy voting advice. But we also noted that the SEC failed to address the foundational determination in the 2020 rules that proxy advice is a proxy solicitation. The second vote taken by the SEC on July 13th was to propose for public comment rules to revise Rule 14A8, the shareholder proposal rule. More specifically, the proposal would revise three provisions of Rule 14A8 that companies may use 
to omit shareholder proposals from their proxy statement. Those three provisions are, number one, substantial implementation or Rule 14A8I10. Number two, duplication or Rule 14A8I11. And number three, resubmission bases or Rule 14A8I12. Starting with the substantial implementation provision or Rule 14A8I10, that rule currently allows companies to exclude a shareholder proposal that the company has already substantially implemented. The proposed amendments would provide that a proposal may be excluded as substantially implemented if the company has already implemented the essential elements of the proposal. Next, the duplication provision or Rule 14A8I11, that provision currently allows companies to exclude a shareholder proposal that substantially duplicates another proposal previously submitted to the company by another proponent that will be included in the company's proxy materials for the same meeting. The proposed amendments would specify that a proposal substantially duplicates another proposal if it addresses the same subject matter and seeks the same objective by the same means. And finally, the resubmission provision or Rule 14.88 I-12 currently allows companies to exclude a shareholder proposal that addresses substantially the same subject matter as a proposal or proposal previously included in the company's proxy materials within the preceding five calendar years if the matter was voted on at least once in the last three years and did not receive sufficient shareholder support. The proposed amendments would include two changes. One, they would provide that a proposal constitutes a resubmission if it substantially duplicates a prior proposal. And two, specify that as with the duplication exclusion, a proposal substantially duplicates another proposal if it addresses the same subject matter and seeks the same objective by the same means. The public comment period for the proposal will remain open until September 12th. CII currently plans to submit a comment letter in response to the proposal. And the number one most significant development in U.S. corporate governance and capital market regulation for the period from June 29th to August 1st was the flurry of legal activity following the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's aforementioned July 13th decision to rescind some of the key provisions in its 2020 rules that had increased the federal regulation of proxy advisor firms. If you happen to be keeping a legal scorecard, on July 21st, the National Association of Manufacturers and the National Gas Services Group filed a lawsuit against the SEC in the U.S. District Court in San Antonio, Texas. National Association of Manufacturers Chief Legal Officer Linda Kelly indicated that manufacturers depend on federal agencies to provide reliable rules of the road and the SEC's arbitrary actions on July 
13th to rescind the July 2020 rules clearly violate its obligations under the Administrative Procedure Act. He added that the National Association of Manufacturers Legal Center is filing suit to preserve the 2020 rule in full and protect manufacturers from proxy advisor firms outsized influence. Next, on July 27th, U.S. District Court Judge for the District of Columbia, Ami Mehta, questioned lawyers for institutional shareholder services about why he should continue to hear the firm's July 2020 lawsuit against the SEC challenging its 2020 rules in light of the SEC's July 13th decision to roll back some of the key provisions of the 2020 rule. Judge Mehta then decided to postpone oral arguments in the case, originally scheduled for July 29th to September 2nd, provide time for the parties to brief some additional issues resulting from the SEC's July 13th Amendment. Judge Mehta also granted a long-standing motion in favor of the National Association of Manufacturers to intervene as a defendant with the SEC in this case. And finally, on July 28th, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, and the Tennessee Chamber of Commerce and Industry filed a suit against the SEC in the district court for the Middle District of Tennessee. The suit argues the SEC did not follow the proper procedures under the Administrative Procedure Act when on July 13th it rescinded the provisions of the 2020 rules. The suit includes three claims. One, the SEC failed to provide serious evidence of new or changed circumstances to justify its action. Two, the SEC failed to provide enhanced justifications for its policy reversal. And three, the SEC opportunistically framed its cost-benefit analysis to focus on the proxy advisor's profitability while ignoring costs to companies and investors. That completes my monthly corporate governance and capital markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.